will continue to ponder the Canucks offseason as we wait for the Stanley Cup final to begin. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drance here. Of course, you can read Drancer's work at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. And it's free agent target week at the Athletic Vancouver, so we've got more targets than the Seahawks secondary during the (laughs) during the um, during the Legion of Boom era. So go check it out. We we focused it on speed today. I think we'll we'll unpack that a little bit, but I do think we should continue our conversation about the Cup Final. Yeah, let's do it. I think we should start at the apex of achievement in the NHL, which is the two teams that have made it through. uh, You know, they they both won uh, twelve playoff games. The Lightning and the Colorado Avalanche are are set to battle. Looks like the Avalanche are pretty overwhelming favorites based on all the public modeling, not to mention Vegas. Looks like about a 61-39 split. And yet, I'm still leaning toward Tampa because of the four-check thing that I explained at 5-on-5. I'm really curious to see how the Colorado breakout holds up in Mm -hmm. all non-Taves Makar minutes. I think I think Bowen Byram is going to be a huge key for the series if the Avalanche are going to win here, and you know I, I the special teams look like a wash. I think you could easily see Tampa Bay have an edge there. I thought their penalty kill went up a notch against the Rangers as their series went along in the conference final, and I'm not sure that the Avs have beaten anybody. That's probably if you wanted to start making the case against the Avalanche, that's probably where you would begin, right? With a, a pretty easy path, certainly much easier than the, the path the Lightning have faced to the Stanley Cup final at this point. I, I think you could easily say that all three teams the Lightning beat are better than all three teams the Avalanche beat. I I mean, I don't even know. Like, Nashville and Edmonton are clearly... The debate would be between St. Louis and New York. That would be the debate. Yeah, and I don't even think that's much of a debate. But is it? One team has Shesterkin. Yeah. That, My goodness. That, that's the end of the debate then, right? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the Blues are the Blues are very similar in profile to the Rangers, right? Both of those... both. Of, you know the in that in that meld of you know Nashville's New York's and St. Louis you have all the teams that you know have a lot of the stuff around the edges that matters the the, the special teams play you know Nashville has the size uh New York has the size um you know St. Louis too right they have the size they have the special teams they have the goaltending for the most part obviously we know Bennington got hurt in that series but but they don't really have a high enough five on five gear. They're you know none of them are um, super structurally sound teams that can just control things when things are going badly and and eke out wins nonetheless. Like win weighted coin flips the way that Tampa Bay does. So you know I I mean for me the Rangers are are the best version of that team. Like they're the best version of that team because they have the best goaltender on on the planet right now. Yeah. And so you know for me it would be pretty clear that the Tampa Bay Lightning have defeated three superior teams to anything that the Colorado Avalanche have come up against to this point. And, you know, I weight that heavily in part because the the Avalanche certainly haven't dealt with a challenge like Tampa Bay, but I feel like Tampa Bay has dealt with a challenge not too dissimilar from Colorado. I mean, Florida and Toronto are not Colorado. But they're you can see they're kind of the you can see it from there you know dollar store Colorado that's a little harsh but you know what I mean like the non premium version well, at least of you didn't Colorado. go with dime store <laughs> I mean yeah no that yeah, the non premium they're the they're, store brand Colorado store brand Colorado that's right in the yellow packaging 
And so, no, I think you're right. And that's that's one of the reasons that I'm sort of looking at Tampa and thinking, man, I, I just wonder if they're going to be able to frustrate this Avalanche team the way that they have a couple of the other elite offenses that they've come up against. I I, I think they're going to be able to do it, and I think I'm going to be taking them in six. Interesting, because yesterday you said seven. I know, and, I, I was, I, and we're we're talking through it. We're not making our official picks, so I won't hold no, no, that against I think you I, or anything. I think like I'm that. ready to lock it in. Oh wow! I'm, All right, you're I'm locking thinking, in Tampa and yeah, six. I'm thinking, and, and but I want to hear from I want to hear from our listeners yeah. a little bit on this. Like text in the Dunbar Lumber text line six fifty six fifty. I'm curious to hear your reasoning on like tell tell me your pick and tell me your reasoning for why you're making it. Yeah, because this is a heavyweight tilt. There is for me there is obviously a clear favorite. It is the Avs, but it's it's. You know, <laughs> these teams are such high quality that it's not. This is not Dallas or Montreal from a Tampa Bay perspective. This is a totally different test that the Lightning are facing in the Stanley Cup Final this time around. I'm curious to know what your pick is and why you're making it. And I, and I want to unpack sort of you know just as a way before I fully lock my pick in. I want to I want to unpack the wisdom of the crowd in terms of who stacks up well against whom in the Cup uh, Final. 650-650, get your thoughts in on the Stanley Cup Final, your pick, your reasoning for it. And we should point out, as much as, you know, if you want to take work roughly with a 60-40 weight in favor of Colorado, which, as you said, based on the betting markets, uh, I want to talk about the model up at the Athletic in a second, you know, 60-40 for an NHL series for a Stanley Cup Final is a pretty significant weight in one way. But if you just think about something in your day-to-day life, a 60% chance versus a 40% chance is not an overwhelming likelihood. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh my gosh, the 40% chance thing came through? Like, no, it's it's not that surprising. When you actually really think about it, relative to hockey, it's a big margin, but it's not actually all that big a margin when you get right down to it. If you're planning your child's birthday party at the park and it's a 60% POP, yeah. you know, you're you're nervous, but you're not like, well, we'll see. You know, you, yeah. you're not you're not canceling. No. And and so there there you go. That's sort of the chance uh, a real life example of what you're facing. And the interesting thing I found as well. So you're we we've talked a lot about uh, the model that uh, your colleague Dom Lucision have runs. we? Do we bring yeah. that up sometimes? We've, we've, on occasion, it has come up on the show, and I've been really enjoying the series previews that Dom and your other athletic colleague, who's been a, a guest regularly Shana, in this station, yeah. Shannon Goldman, oh, unbelievable, are doing. Work. And you know this one, the kind of. Headlining number in their article is, yeah, 61% chance for the Avs, 39% chance for the Lightning. But one of the interesting things about it is, I think at the beginning of the playoffs or later in the regular season, they also kind of introduced this supplement to the model called heavy score, which was this chance uh, or an attempt to kind of integrate a lot of the um, the cliches about playoff hockey into a statistical model, right? Like, yep. hey, big, strong, heavy teams, they tend to do better. And if they implemented that part of the model it would go to a 55-45, right? So getting much, much closer to a soft. And I thought that was very interesting that that's kind of an analytical attempt to, you know, as I said, incorporate a lot of those old school hockey cliches. And it it matches that conventional wisdom that all of a sudden, if you start to factor that in, it tilts the matchup much more strongly in Tampa's favor, gets it very, very close uh, to a true coin flip. I'm going to ride with Tampa. Maybe I'll wait and make my official pick tomorrow. I am going to ride with Tampa because, as I said, after the Florida series, I'm not picking against them again until they lose. The debate I have is when you're not the home team picking between winning in six and winning in seven, right? Because totally the road team tends to win more often in six. That also feels like a little bit of an aggressive pick, but then you think, okay, are they going to win a game seven on the road? Yeah, it's, if there's any team they can do that can do it, it's Tampa, but it's hard. If you're thinking they're going to win, you're thinking they're going to win at least one on the road yeah. anyway. So why wouldn't you yeah, pick? Win one the, on the road, take care of business at home. Yeah. 
that's probably the most likely uh, the most likely path. I don't necessarily want to uh, make the same pick as you, so maybe I'll take. Uh, maybe well, I'll. Uh, take, we can uh, make a show yeah, pick. Yeah, we'll see. Um, this one comes in uh, immediately to the six fifty six fifty Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in the the Stanley Cup final. Lots of good ones already. Uh, this one unsigned, or actually no, it's from Jim from North Van. He says, "I think it's going to be the Avs." Tampa Bay hasn't faced a defenseman like Kale McCarr on his game in any of their three cup runs. And that's a great point. Very few teams have faced a defenseman like Kale McCarr at the top of his game because very few defensemen like that have existed, uh, certainly in recent decades in the NHL. And again, you know, as I said, uh, Toronto, Florida, kind of the store brand version of Colorado and the thing separating them from being the premium version really is the presence of Kale McCarn. Well, or one of the things. Especially because Ekblad was in a diminished yeah. state throughout the playoffs in, in the wake of a pretty significant lower body injury that he suffered in the last, you know, in, in game 50 of the season. Um, so, you know, I think that's a totally fair point. Uh, Adam Fox, though, is no slouch. I mean, yep. in fairness, right? I, I, in, yeah, you're right. They didn't face the best defenseman currently in hockey yet, but they have faced, over the course of their three-peat, uh, Miro Heskinen at the top of his game. He had 26 points in oh, that playoff run. That was a absolutely phenomenal playoff run by Miro Heskinen. Unbelievable. Just incredible. Yeah. The, uh, the perfect defenseman. He, he's incredible. And they beat Adam Fox, um, you know, New York Rangers. They beat Aaron Ekblad at the peak of his powers a year ago. Uh, Ekblad's sort of in a tier a, a little bit below those other guys, but not by a lot. I mean, Ekblad's a phenomenal 1A defenseman. Um, you know, I guess Jacob Slavin's probably not making our top ten list. Eh, he's not making our top five list, but he's he's a contender for a top ten list. Yeah, but he's also I really like Jacob Slavin, but Kale McCarr has separated himself even from guys like four and five in the NHL, I think, at this point. Yeah. You know, let alone guys who are like eight, right. nine, ten, eleven. No, you know what sure. I mean? You're right. And then and then, you know, the Islanders twice, they don't they don't really have an elite defenseman, <laughs> um, but uh, but I mean I have a ton of time for Adam Pellick. Like I have a ton of time for Adam Pellick. So yeah, I mean, look, it's a fair point. McCarr gives them a totally different gear, and and for all of that said, one of the other reasons that I'm picking Tampa Bay, I think, well, no, I'm definitely picking Tampa Bay at this point. One of the other reasons I'm doing going to do so is I think there's an argument to be made. That the best player in a, in this series plays for the Tampa Bay Lightning. And it's not Stamkos, and it's not Brendan Point, and it's not Victor Hedman, and it's not Andre Vasilevsky, and it's not Nathan McKinnon, and it's not Miko Ranton, and it's not Kel McCarr. It's Nikita Kucherov. For me, Nikita Kucherov might be, right now, the player that I'd pick first, maybe even ahead of Connor, to be totally honest, if wow. I had to win a game tomorrow against a team of aliens with the fate of the world in the balance. Uh, Kucherov's just... So outrageous. He's just so outrageous and so productive in the biggest moments and so adept at score. Like, if you want to open it up and play run and gun, he can score off the rush. If you if you want to be a heavy team and, and grind it to a halt, he's going to still find that seam. Like, Nikita Kucherov might be the best problem solver in hockey. Might be the best power play weapon in hockey. I just... I, as fast as Makar and Taves are, as perfectly suited as they were to shutting down Connor McDavid. Mm-hmm. And as impressive as that is, the Kucherov test is a different one. Is a different one because it requires you to have eyes in the back of your head. It's not just keep keep the guy who moves at the speed of a, you know, um a, a bullet train a- ahead of you. It's you know, have have 
360 degree awareness at all moments because just a small inch and he's going to send some perfect pass under three sticks to a teammate for a tap-in. It's a good point because I think Colorado has been a little bit underrated defensively because they get so much attention on what they can do offensively. But if you're just trying to break down the different you know, methods of defending or where you're defending on the ice, I think you're right. They're more suited to defend teams that excel off the rush versus teams that get set up in your own zone, cycle, do all of that, right? Not that they're bad at that, but they excel more at the other one, which was the more relevant skill uh, against Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers. And Kucherov, as you say, might be one of the best at just playing with poise in the offensive down, slowing it down to his pace, picking the right pass, and, and putting his teammates in a position to succeed. I just don't know that there's a better player. Like, I just, I just, I just don't. I'm, in terms of, and there's a difference between quality and, like, the, the business trip mentality of winning. Like, I don't know that there's a better offensive player in terms of winning than Kucherov. I think it's wild that he didn't get more Conn Smythe consideration for the 2020 run in particular. You know, I, I think the next year it was obviously should have, should have been Braden Point. But the 2020 run, for me, he was so clearly the straw that stirs the drink. I think he's the most underrated part of that team. Um, you know, I think there's a real shot that this is his Steph Curry moment. Like, that this is his moment. Like, oh, right, this guy. This guy's the guy who we've kind of been sleeping on for years and years while debating cap circumvention and, you know... Uh, <laughs> Victor Hedman's spot in the hierarchy and and drooling over Andre Vasilevsky's numbers in elimination games when when push comes to shove it's always Kucherov authoring the plays that are decisive. Uh it's really interesting pretty overwhelming support in favor of Tampa Bay in the 650 650 wow. inbox not exclusive and I'll get to some of the Colorado ones as well but I'll just read uh, a selection of the Tampa Bay yeah, ones. Yeah and, let, and let's kick them around. Yeah this one comes in uh, unsigned and you'll You'll notice a theme in a lot of these dancers. This one comes in unsigned. Uh, first of all, I haven't been this excited for an NHL final since Boston and Chicago. Tampa in seven. Colorado will outshoot Tampa, but goaltending wins championships. Uh, Kevin from North Fan says, I'm going for the Avs, but Tampa Bay will win. Defense and goaltending prevail over speed and skill. Another one from Rager who says, uh, I'm calling Tampa in six, but I could see it going seven as well. The goaltending and the overall resiliency that the Bolts have feels like the Patriots in the 2010s. They just always seem to find a way when their back's against the wall. They never panic. They've seen everything. That's an interesting comparison. I love the I love the comparison because the thing that the Avs do, like, you know how you can bet uh, in a series? And maybe, maybe you'll be so kind as to visit play now and tell me what the odds on this are. Sure. But you know the bet. You know how you can bet a series two ways: the the team to win game one, and then the outcome of the series. Yeah, I, I like. I would. L- I think Tampa loses game one, but I think they win the series. Right, like the thing that Tampa does better than anyone else, and this mimics the Patriots, and is why I find that analogy uh, quite compelling. Is they adapt? They adapt to what you do, and and we talked about. When they had that elite third line, when they had that elite bottom six forward group a year ago, they were able to, you know, take on the Panthers who play run and gun and play run and gun with the Panthers and beat them at their own game. And then they were able to forecheck the Hurricanes into oblivion, even though that's what the Hurricanes were trying to do to them. And then they were happy to shut down, play shutdown hockey and beat the New York Islanders at their own boa constrictor game, winning mm-hmm. game seven, one nothing with a shorthanded goal. Just decisive, right? Just symbolically hilarious. And then the Habs came and tried to do their playoff hockey shtick and rough it up between the whistles, and the Tampa Bay Lightning were game to that and got the better of that, winning in five. 
um, with you know an overtime, like a very very fortunate comeback, regular uh, regulation comeback, and an overtime winner, the only blemish on 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 a gentleman's sweep of the Montreal Canadiens. So we saw that when the Tampa Bay Lightning had the extra gear. Now they're a little bit diminished. They they had to rebuild their bottom six on the fly, and yet every series we see them play better as it goes on. Figure out teams. They solve teams. You know, it was the second period of the game of game four where they were just poking and prodding. And I, I mean, I think I said it on the radio during our show, like the, there's a there's a difference between a team that's winning and a team that's solving their opponent. And that game four, they were still down. They had a one nothing lead off a Pat Maroon rebound goal. And all of a sudden they just went into that one three one. They slowed the pace down. They weren't even skating at full tilt. They were just suffocating the New York Rangers and generating these counter chances when every time the Rangers stopped um, or couldn't get through their neutral zone setup and they f- have this two on one. It's a near miss, uh, a chance at a chance. And then Pilat hits Kucherov for the breakaway. And for that, for me in that moment, especially because I was kind of sweating the result of that series, I immediately was like, okay. No no question in my mind, I don't think the Rangers are winning again. Tampa Bay, as series goes along, solves teams. And that's, you know, one thing that I think they have in common with the Bill Belichick-era Patriots. Uh, I like this text uh, that came in unsigned. It says, Tampa Bay hasn't had to face the best defenseman in the league during their playoff run because he currently plays for them. <laughs> and I think you could make the argument that McCarr in this playoff has maybe taken the crown from Victor Hedman, but... If he has, it's not by this giant margin. Victor Hedman is still an absolute phenomenal defenseman, and it's a good point that the texture brings up. It's a fun debate now, too, yes. right? It's like it's like that's a subplot that we can track through the Stanley Cup final. Like, who has the belt? Who has the best defenseman belt yeah. between Hedman and, and McCarr? Because, you know, again, for me, Hedman won the Conn Smythe during the 2020 run. He's been better on this run. This run has been... If you go back and watch Game 6, the game that the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning survived against the Toronto Maple Leafs, that was Victor Hedman's masterpiece. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, you, it's hard to think of a defender having a better game than that. And as good as Makar has been in, at times throughout this playoffs, uh, you know, just, <laughs> just eating opponents for breakfast, um, the level of control that Hedman's able to exercise at, at his peak, I think is still more impressive to me still more impressive to me still more conducive to stimulating winning but we'll see i, I you know makar is i've never seen a guy i've never seen what i what makar does like t- twice a period that i've never seen before is you you send a pass that's like an inch wrong or a guy just yeah. mishandles it and makar doesn't just break up the play but within a second or two he's generated with his feet an odd man rush the other way and it's like the the it gives you whiplash how quickly it's like one small error by the offensive player and all of a sudden the team's completely not just on their heels but like five alarm on their heels within seconds i've never seen that i like i genuinely i mean you think about scott niedermeyer you think about ray bork who for me is the closest stylistic comp mm-hmm. for McCart. i've never seen that in person bobby orr was before my time i've never seen that McCarr does it twice a period it's like a matter of routine for him and it's Beyond special. Just on the Makar Hedman debate, you know, you when you made the point about Kucherov earlier and said you might even take him number one over Connor McDavid, I did, think it's did a, people get upset about no, that. No, no, I mean because because it's a you know it, it, you you couched it in a way not to make it an obnoxious sports radio hot take. Yeah, it's not like it's not like he's a better player. Yeah, but 
I think there's an interesting dynamic, a similar dynamic happening in the Hedman McCarr thing, right? And when right. you're trying to find the margins between absolute, no doubt, you know, Hall of Fame caliber elite players, I do think as much as, you know, we can kind of laugh at Ring's culture and like, oh, what do you, you've never won a ring, you're overrated as a player or whatever. Like, being the guy who's carried his team from the blue line to two Stanley Cups, when you're talking about who would you rather have, that does matter at the end of the day, right? And so Hedman has done that. He has that on his resume. Makar hasn't yet. I think it speaks volumes of just how good Makar has been that despite not having that on his resume, he's made it an interesting conversation with Hedman. But it, it does kind of matter. As you said, It's Hedman has shown that he can will his team or help will his team to Stanley Cup victories, and he de- deserves a lot of respect uh, for that. Uh, another point that's coming in that I think is an interesting one, uh, 650, 650 for the Dunbar text line. Again, really overwhelming support for Tampa. A lot of people saying they're cheering for the Avs, but they think it's going to be Tampa. Uh, this I, one, I love, by the way, really quickly, I love that Vancouver will always cheer instinctively for skilled hockey. I think that's a real ingrown bias among Canucks fans. You know, this is the team of the West Coast Express, the Sedins, Pavel Bure. Like, the last 25 years, if you're under 40, you, your experience with the Canucks is that the Canucks have always been that team for the most part when the, when the chips have been down and they've been in those series. And I, I just love that this is, like, the market that's most um, naturally compelled to root for that outcome. I think that's very telling. This text says, uh, Tampa in five. Goaltending will be the biggest difference, but the second reason is John Cooper. If both teams were exactly tied in skill, the team coached by Cooper would win 70% of the time. He will go down as one of the best coaches of all time. And another text along uh, those lines. He's Prince said, George's from, own. Yeah, from Elliot and Ladner says, I'll give a reason for Tampa. Coaching, as highly touted as Cooper is, he's still underrated. And then Elliot says, but I hope I'm wrong. Go Avs. <laughs> Cooper, it's a great point. Now, that's no slight whatsoever Cooper's, against Cooper's Jared Bednar. Yeah, and I do think it's kind of funny that Tampa's about to start their third consecutive Stanley Cup final, having won the last two. Hasn't won the Jack Adams. Hasn't won the Jack Adams ever. Hasn't even been a finalist in any of these three seasons, despite manifestly doing the best job of coaching his team over these last three years. So I think the texture makes a good point. Yeah, he gets all the accolades. His impact might still be underrated. He's a phenomenal coach. I would love to see a Team Canada coached by John Cooper, oh. especially especially in contrast with the, you know, um, kill all fun, suck all oxygen out of games Team Canada's. That Yeah, yeah. They, look, they were a gold medal winning machine, but I'd love to see what Cooper could do with that assignment because I think he'd bring some joyfulness back to the act of Team Canada uh, uh, winning, you know, international best-on-best tournaments. With regards to the coaching advantage, Cooper is the best, no question. But do not sleep on Jared Bednar. Jared Bednar is a very, very good coach. And I remember it was midway through his very first season as Avs coach. And remember, you remember what happened. They had 50 points. Yeah, it was a disaster. Disaster. And I remember a veteran AHL coach telling me, ignore those results. That guy, that guy's incredible. And I, I, it's always stuck with me because I, I've seen since Bednar do a ton of smart stuff. And, you know, I thought his ability in particular stood out in that Edmonton series where, you know, he changed his forward lines. Like, I, I thought that they would go prior to the injury with a a cadre checking line against McDavid and that he'd sacrifice some of McDavid's minutes. And instead, and instead he loaded up McKinnon's line 
with his best two-way wingers. So all of a sudden they come out against the Colorado Avalanche with McKinnon in between Landeskog and Nachushkin. And they maximize. They they chase that matchup. They're they're happy. They were happy to have McKinnon duel McDavid straight up. It maximized McKinnon's minutes, and they gave him the maximum amount of help by sort of deploying as a five man unit him with Taves and Makar, who could keep up with them on the back end, and Nichushkin and Landeskog, who were the best battle winners up front. I, to tweak your lines when you're rolling the way the Avs were. Right where where they'd lost two games in the first two series, and one of those games was extremely lucky. Like the the St. Louis Blues extending that series was you know a black swan event basically. That level of luck uh, it took for the for that series to go six. I thought that was an enormously confident move. Like I thought that was in- incredibly confident. And then he loses. I also would add losing Gerard and playing Byram, Makar, and Taves as a top three, yes. including a healthy dose of you know, carefully curated Byram Makar minutes. That's a level of detail. Um, that's a level of detail, attention to it, um, you know, like real-time um, juking of the odds that, you know, there's not a lot of coaches who can do that and, you know, um, as successfully as Bednar has in this playoffs. Uh, it is it is, it is, is an edge to Tampa Bay because Cooper has the resume, but don't overrate it. If Cooper is unequivocally the best coach in hockey and I have to th- I have to say he is uh, I don't think Bednar's far off of the you know the uh, the absolute top tier the absolute top five for me I think he's that good um two quick points on on John Cooper and the coaching matchup first of all you mentioned how fun it would be to watch him coach a team Canada and one of the other just on that tangent one of the other big takeaways as a whole from this Stanley Cup playoffs for me is how absolutely unfortunate it is that we didn't get to see Kale McCarr and Connor McDavid and Nathan McKinnon all take the ice together uh, simultaneously for Team Canada at some point this year because P- that PP one would have been Crosby at the net front, pretty entertaining. Yeah, that would have been pretty good. PP one with Crosby at the net front. You've got McDavid on the right circle, right? So on his uh, yes. on his one timer side, yes. you've got McKinnon uh, on the other on circle. the other one. Uh, you you've got Bergeron at the bumper, so you've got a righty in the bumper. You've got Crosby at the net front, and you've got McCarr at the point. Tell Not me bad. I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. All right, hold on. We got to we got to save Tell our. Tell me um, I'm wrong. We have to save our uh, team Canada roster predictions for, <laughs> for, for free the agent frenzy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah, for free agent I, well, frenzy. Well, but forget forget <laughs> the roster. PP one Bergeron, Crosby, McKinnon, McDavid. We may never get to see it now. But the yeah, it's true. Um, it, anyways, that's a that's a topic for another day. But you made the point about how he's adjusted to kind of riding his top three defenseman, Jared Bednar, and I think that's an interesting comparison because other than the overall culture building or whatever one you want to call it program building that John Cooper has done for Tampa the thing that always sticks out for me from an on-ice level is how he manages his defense how he manages his blue line right gets Victor Hedman out there with different partners it's not just hey these are my three pairs and I'm going to put them out there in sequence he gets really creative uh, how he divvies up those minutes on the blue line and I think that's going to be a fascinating battle to watch in this series that's kind of the coaching matchup I'm going to be watching most closely because the divide between Colorado's top three on the blue line and bottom three is huge. And if you're looking for a weakness on their roster that Tampa can exploit, it's probably those bottom three defensemen. And how Bednar manages those minutes and how Cooper does it on the other side, I think is going to be a huge factor. I wonder if Cooper will, and I this is my answer to every query go like 11-7. this. I wonder if he'll go 11-7. Well, he's the king of it. He's the, he's the best at it. Yeah. Well, he's the guy who turned it into an ad- advantage. Yeah. But, I, I mean, if you want to get some Kucherov, Stamkos, point if he's healthy... Pilot minutes against you know Johnson and Johnson, 
the 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 one dose defense pair, then you know I do think that uh, I do think that going eleven seven might might be a way to do it. And and when the downside of that is scratching Riley Nash, I'd find it tempting. Yeah, and, and he's he's the guy as you said who's taken it from something that you do because you're desperate and you don't have enough forwards to a legitimate tactic you can use to to swing things your way. And that yeah. again, that speaks very very highly of the job he's done coaching. Uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Fantastic feedback in the 650-650 inbox. If you still have thoughts about the Stanley Cup final matchup, what you're expecting to see, hit us up again. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots more to come on the other side. We'll dive a little bit into the Canucks off-season outlook. How can they add some more speed to the lineup? We'll tackle that one. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. More on the other side. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strantz here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win. For years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Uh, yesterday was um, not an anniversary, but I guess uh, an interesting milestone in that it was exactly one month away from the start of NHL free agency on July 13th. And, and to kick it off, and all week you and uh, your colleague Harmon Dialer are posting articles up at The Athletic about the Canucks off-season shopping list, some interesting UFA targets. Yesterday, we talked about some guys who could add sandpaper, to use Jim Rutherford's terminology, to the lineup. A little bit of grit, toughness, whatever you want to call it. Today, you have another interesting list up at The Athletic that people can go check out. Some targets up front that could add speed to the Canucks forward group. And the speed thing is interesting because... It's urgent. Yeah. We've... Like... Rutherford has mentioned sandpaper, but I would say he's hammered home the need for speed. Well, and so is Boudreaux. So did Travis Green before him. Yeah. I mean, this team was not fast enough. And you could tell, you could tell, like, first off, the moment they got Mott and Highmore back into the lineup at the same time, they looked like a different team, right? It, it completely changed the complexion of how they were able to play because all of a sudden you had two above average skaters in the lineup. When the team didn't have those guys in earlier in the year, it was painful. It was painful, and they kept losing. Like, you could basically tell which games the Canucks would struggle in based solely on the speed. How much? How many yes. times did we talk about that going into games? Like, against the New Jersey Devils, we'd be like, ah, oh, you know. Fast team. <laughs> my goodness, the, you know. Uh, so, speed was so decisive in shaping Canucks' outcomes last season, and you need to address it. You need to address it this offseason. Now, one thing I'd note, this list has five guys. There's other guys. Yeah, There's other guys who can, who can burn. Dominic Simon is one of them. Um, he didn't make my list just because you know whatever fourth line sort of hope bet whatever you want to you want to place it below the line sure. I also didn't include some of the guys on the team now who you know I think could potentially be partial answers in this area. Sheldon Dries would stand out to me. Phil DiGiuseppe, who never really got a shot, would stand out to me as an example. Um, Sheldon Rempel, you know those are guys who could help in this area, and and we'll see how the Canucks approach stocking uh, Abbotsford, but. You know, I think those are guys who, if the Canucks decided to resign, could be partial answers too to, to adding some foot speed to the lineup. But this article really focused on uh, guys a little bit higher up the lineup, right? Like yeah. this was this was really guys who can add some speed to your top nine for the most part. 
Well, and similar to the the sandpaper list, there's some kind of you know stretch targets. Maybe we'll call it that. Guys at the top, and then you you, you cycle down to the more uh, value guys who might be available a lot more cheaply. But I did find it interesting, and maybe this is because of how speed is valued around the league uh, at this point. But I thought the options on this list for how to how to get faster. They struck me as less appealing than a lot of the names on the uh, on the sandpaper list. Yes. Now, okay, we'll we'll go through them here. Uh, I'd, a little add bit. To, I'd add two. I'd add two. There is a little bit of redundancy, right? In that, in that, there's some guys who are on the sandpaper list sure. who could who could well have been on sure. this one. Uh, Lazar would be among them. He's not he's not a burner, but he's an above average skater. Mason Marchment, Maxim Mammon, and uh, Zach Ashton Reese in particular are sort of guys who I'd placed on the. Sandpaper list, Colin Blackwell too, who could well have appeared on this list as well. So one thing to note is in, in part of the reason for that anyway yep. is that some of the options were l- enumerated earlier in the week. And a lot of the names you just read there that could have been on both lists are the guys that I really like for the Canucks <laughs> yeah. from, the, from the Sandpaper so, list, right? So that would be the one context that, I, that I'd add there. But you're right. I mean, speed is highly valued. And, and I mean, I think Ilya Mikhaev is a really interesting jumping off point for us because... I will not be surprised in the least if the Canucks are among the suitors for Mikhaev once he hits July 13th. Some guys, their suspense, will they resign with their current team? Mikhaev, I don't see much of that. I, I don't think there's any suspense, to be totally honest with you. Mikhaev is going to be more expensive than what the Leafs can afford, in, in my view, without, without making some moves to free up space. Um, goaltending is really going to be their focus. You know that that team's going to be confident, particularly after getting Camp and um, Bunting and Kasha done the way that they did affordably, that they can replace Mikhaev or at least partially replace Mikhaev. I don't think there's much chance that Mikhaev's not going to market, uh, short of being dealt, you know, his rights being dealt beforehand, uh, in which case the Canucks could play in that market should they choose to. That You're talking about a mid-round pick. So Mikhaev's going to be available I would expect that the Canucks would have real interest there for a, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And the thing to know about Mikhaev is without the puck, without the puck, Mikhaev is in the very, very top tier of NHL skaters. I mean, I you know, other than McDavid, I think I think I'd put him next. But with the qualifier that that's uh, that speed plays mostly without the puck. He's not as quick as a puck carrier as some of the as like a Matt Barzell. Like I, I would pick Matt Barzell to lose a race to Mikhaev without the puck, but one, once they have it, <laughs> McCar- I'm sorry, uh, Barzell's going to beat him. So it, it, you know, with Mikhaev though, you're talking about a relentless forechecker, a guy who wins a ton of battles simply by virtue of being first there, and to his credit, having the courage to be first there consistently against bigger opponents. Um, he had 21 goals last year in 57 games, which is a very good clip, and he had it at the perfect time, contract year. I think there's a real chance that he's valued higher than the 3.5 million that Pierre LeBrun, my colleague at the Athletic, reported that Mikhaev and and his representatives and he's represented by Dan Milstein of Gold Star Hockey, uh, Gold Star of course managing the Andre Kuzmenko bidding at the moment. Um, you know he he's one of those guys who you know I think could go for silly money potentially. Yeah, and and that's sort of where the rubber meets the road here because there's actually a case to be made for paying Mikhaev as a top six winger. If you're paying him as a low-end top six winger and you believe that given the opportunity to play with better players, right, to play a regular top six role, maybe even to see some power play time, 
if you believe that with that level of opportunity may come enhanced production, you could responsibly make the bet that, hey, we're going to get a top six caliber player at a low end top six caliber valuation in unrestricted free agency. The problem for me that I have with that is that I genuinely believe that Mikhaev has hands of stone. <laughs> I just don't think the finishing's ever going to play at an average level. I really don't. Um, I love the player. Love the player. But I like him as a bottom six guy. I, I think that's sort of where he caps out. I know that opportunity is going to be essential, too, in, in his camp deciding exactly where to go. And so we'll see exactly how this plays out because in a world where the Canucks free up some cap space and free up some opportunity in their forward ranks, I do think Vancouver could, particularly if they're able to land Kuzmenko and they have Pod Coles and, and you know, there, there's a, a, a genuine Russian contingent among Vancouver's forward ranks. You know, I think this could be a really appealing uh, destination potentially for, for the Canucks to sell Mikhaev on. And I think there is a chance that he could be more in his next stop than he was for the Maple Leafs. But I just see a ton of regression risk, and I do not see a guy who's likely to be a top-six caliber point producer. Mikheyev is a really fascinating UFA target, especially for the Canucks, because he does check so many boxes for what they're trying to build. You know, obviously we're talking about him because of his speed, but it's not just, you know, flashy speed. It's very functional. As you said, great four-checker, really sturdy defensively, excellent two-way player, you know, has size on top of that speed, all of that you really, really like, but he also has one of the classic red flags for any UFA, which is massive spike in goal scoring in his contract year. That's unlikely to be sustainable. Percentage driven. Yeah, and you just look at it. So he had 21 goals in 53 games last year. That's fantastic. Previous to that in his NHL career, he had 15 in almost 100 games, right? Like the year before, seven goals in 54 games. That's probably a lot closer to what you should expect for William McKayev. Now, he could still be a very valuable player for you. And if he hadn't had that kind of spike and was hitting the UFA market, I mean, there's a case to be made that if he hadn't had that spike, Toronto's resigning him because they're able to get him at a lower price or whatever. But if he, if he had scored goals last season at his you know career norm, I think you're getting a lot of buzz around him as, wow, this guy is going to be an undervalued free agent. More, he more does like so many a other things. fast quality UFA, yeah. as opposed to what you're now dealing with, where, you know, you could be looking at four, four and a half. I, I don't know if it gets that silly, but I think it could get silly on a lot of these guys, right? I mean, I was talking to some veteran people today talking about Marchment and Rodriguez, right? And people are like, well, how much is Rodriguez going to jump from a $1 million valuation? I'm like, he's a right-handed centerman. He's a right-handed centerman. I won't be shocked if he gets five. He's only a 40-point guy, but I won't be shocked if he gets five. He's a right-handed centerman. What happens when a team, you know, that went all in for Kadri comes second in that sweepstakes? Yeah. You're not. You're telling me they're not turning around and, and making Evan Rodriguez a massive offer? I think they are. So, you know, it's tough to gauge UFA valuations in advance, but I think Mikhaev could well end up smelling like the vault come July 14th. And, you know, I, I do see some risk in weighing those factors from a Canucks perspective. With all of that said, very, very good player who would bring, an, a, a, you know, I, I mean, this is a guy who's faster than Tyler Mott. You know, like he would bring a completely different dynamic to this forward group and one that would be so welcome in terms of what they need from a, you know, consistently winning battles perspective. Not to mention, not to mention, and this is another thing, I do think a player like Mikhaev with Mikhaev's skill set, even if I don't buy him as a consistent top six point producer, I do buy that he could be more valuable within a system or with, within a set of concepts like Bruce Boudreaux deploys, wherein 
he'd be forechecking with reckless abandon right. on a very regular basis. Right. And, and there's some interesting, you know, you mentioned Pod Colson and um, Bo Horvat, like guys who play with that same kind of straight line speed. And you can imagine a really elite forechecking two-way group to be forged there that, again, maybe you're not going to get those 20 goals that he put up last year, but will the would the offense be at enough of a baseline to kind of justify spending the money on all the other really good things he does. But, you know, I think Mikheyev is an interesting name. And the the kind of comparison that I would make to the guys we talked about on the sandpaper list yesterday is Andrew Kopp. Really, really like Andrew Kopp as a player. And you know what? Would it be a shock to see if the Canucks try to bring in Andrew Kopp? No, not necessarily. But it almost reinforces to me, you know, before we even get to the individual names that the Canucks should pursue in free agency. So much of that is going to depend on what dominoes fall beforehand, right? And how much cap space are we, are we actually talking about here? Because if they go into free agency with roughly the same amount of cap space as they have right now, well, then my gut reaction is don't call Andrew Kopp. Don't call Ilya Mikhaev. You wait until, you know, day three of free agency and you still, you see who's still available and you try to swoop in and get them for the cheap. Like, that would be my kind of baseline expectation for what the team should do. But if there's some real fireworks before then and all of a sudden you really do open up a whole bunch of cap space, well, then I think it becomes a lot more plausible to actually go go uh, after some of these bigger names. Not that Mikhaev is a massive name or anything, but it would require a commitment of money and a commitment of term. Andrew Kopp probably in a tier above that. I do think there's a scenario where that could make sense for the Canucks, but a lot has to happen between now and then for me to feel really good about those kinds of investments early in free agency. Well, for sure. And, and early in free agency is the key. Like, one thing that a lot of commentators on our stories have noted is, you know, these are the types of deals that we don't want to see because those are the types of deals that burned this club in the past. Now, Micaiah, for me, is 27. I think if you manage the term and the, and the money, he's not... Uh, an Antoine yeah. Roussel analog. And I would say if you look at, okay, what's the Canucks window, so to speak, we've kind of used the Thatcher Demko uh, contract framework. As you said, McKayev's 27. Like, can he still be good in those final two years of the Demko contract? Absolutely. 100%. Right? So that, yeah, you got to make sure it works, but it's not fundamentally this landmine that's going to blow no. up in your face. Well, and, and you know, the, the same logic holds true across this group. I mean, we also included Frank Vetrano, not quite the burner, that Mikhaev is, but a really good secondary scoring option who played top six minutes for the New York Rangers, excelled their high-end shot rate, like a really high-end shot rate. He is a one-shot goal scorer, gets a ton of volume, shoots from anywhere, a little bit, can get a little bit of tunnel vision in terms of his overall overall game. But if you want a finisher on a line, you know, in a world where the Canucks are rolling Pedersen, Bo Horvat, JT Miller down the down the down the center ranks, you know, a guy like Vetrano pairing a guy like Vetrano with a guy like Miller gives him a shoot first goal scorer, uh, you know, that's potentially on a second or third line for you. I mean, that's a huge huge win potentially for the team. I think he could, I think he'd helped himself out a ton <laughs> with with his playoff run, maybe more than anyone else in the Stanley Cup playoffs, with perhaps the exception of Valerie Nichushkin. I have Andreas Athanasiu here. Athanasiu is more of a sheltered, yes. uh, bottom six scoring option, a little bit one dimensional. Uh, think think a little bit like uh, like a lefty uh, Vertanen, but without the same frustration that you want him to play bigger. Uh, that's sort of what you're talking about with Athanasiu. 
productive player, like 40-point guy, 20-goal guy the last two years, uh, over 82, prorated over 82. He's dealt with some durability issues. I think he could be a more economical option. He'd certainly add a ton of speed, but not a ton away from the puck. I don't know that he's the same brand of speedster who would play up in Boudreaux, right. uh, under Boudreaux, the way that Mikhaev might. So that's sort of some context and, there. And, yeah. th- and, then, and then I also have a couple guys who are lower end, right? Like Tyler Ennis for me is sort of in the mold of, do you want to replicate what Brad Richardson brought after the deadline, right? Like Tyler Ennis is a guy who could sort of do that in my, in my mind's eye. You know, if you have a Canucks fourth line, that's something like Ennis, Lamico and Highmore. Can they be 85% of what you got from the model line? Uh, and, and I would say, yeah, I think, I think they can. Um, and then, and then lastly, I have Rocco Grimaldi and Grimaldi for me is the most like, you know, for me, he's a top nine player. He went down to the American league last year and crushed it over point per game. Uh, there have been seasons in Nashville where he'd play with, you know, Nick Bonino on a third line, and that line would be like 65% expected goals. Like, he's a legitimate play driver, um, got some offensive skill, can definitely score 10 to 15 goals for you in a, in a bottom six role. I think he can play up the lineup in a pinch. You know, for me, he'd be like the perfect seventh top six forward for a team. I think he's going to be super affordable to to obtain. And I, and I think there's real upside there as a, you know, low risk, high reward, potential high reward candidate. Um, so that's sort of included because, yeah, I get the frustration. What, what you ideally want to find is the next Delia Mikhaev. Yeah. But the next Delia Mikhaev is playing in Russia or, or, or Finland, right? I mean, the, the next Delia Mikhaev or even a better version of it might be Kuzmenko, who the Canucks are actively pitching and recruiting at the moment. So, you know, we'll see exactly where it goes. Um, but but Grimaldi for me is is sort of in that vein, in that in that Nolachari vein of trying to find the next Curtis Lazar as a, as opposed to signing Curtis Lazar. And it's just it's there's a really interesting kind of tier break for me between you know just combining the two lists between like Cop and Mikhaev, who are guys that are going to help you win next year and are going to but you're signing those guys with the expectation that they're a part of the next really competitive Canucks team, right? That's why you go out and sign them versus, you know, a guy like Andreas Antonisio. To me, that's a we've traded a lot of people and we need bodies to be in the top 6. Right. And this is a guy and this is a band-aid and there's value to that. If I that's still the don't think you'd you play go, him in the top 6. Sure. Even if you Fair did enough. that like he's just not going to hold up in matchup minutes. Yeah. You know, like you're not going to play him with Pedersen or or Bo Horvat. If you're bringing him in it's to build you know, a sheltered third scoring line, in my opinion. That yeah, would be how it, I'd feel. My point is that it's you're, you're signing him as kind of a stopgap solution, and maybe right. you boost his value, you move him to the deadline, whatever, versus the guys that are more likely to be kind of long-term fits for your team. Uh, really quick, I wanted to get this one in. Keith texts in, you're talking about speed. What do we see with Will Lockwood next year? And my expectation would be, you know, he's going to be in camp. He's going to have an opportunity to make the team, but it will very much be a competition, and they're going to bring in bodies that will probably have a leg up going into training camp with a competition with Will Lockwood. I just don't have expectations for guys like Lockwood. It's it's up to him to have a great summer and to knock the door down. But if you're penciling Will Lockwood into the Canucks bottom six, that's that's hopeful for me. That's hopeful. And hope's not strategy. You know, that's not how you win games in, in this at this level. And even if the Canucks aren't trying to win, you know, now, even if they make more forward-looking uh, moves – you know, the, the challenge for a guy like a Lockwood or a guy like a Rathbone is not to give them jobs, but to create an environment where they have to come in and win them. Yeah. And so that for me, like, I'm not factoring Will Lockwood onto the whiteboard in any in any sh- way, shape or form. If he comes in and earns it, great. That's great. Then then you make some of those good 
style of hard decisions. But, you know, that, it's, it's on the young player. Uh, lastly, I talked about the series, uh, the game series double. Actually, the highest odds are on Tampa to lose game one and win the series. Uh, four, 4.75. That's the odds on that. So decent value there. I kind of, if I, if I gambled on hockey, which I don't. I would, uh, I would certainly be, um, I would certainly be eyeing that, eyeing that with, uh, with wide eyes. Uh, very good. All right. Thanks for everyone who texted in today. Fantastic feedback. We'll be back tomorrow on an hour earlier because it is game one of the Stanley Cup final. So check us out at 11 on Sportsnet 650. Of course, uh, anytime on the podcast, the people show with Bick Nazar, Randy Janda is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.